Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, the second chapter, beginning with the first verse. Listen, will you, for the Word of God, as it's proclaimed through these words of the evangelist John. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of God for the people of God. Last October, my son Nick and uh, his longtime girlfriend Becca were married. It was a great, wonderful celebration, an outdoor wedding on the coast of New England, just south of the main border. The whole weekend was quite a celebration. It began with a rehearsal dinner for 90 of their closest friends and family. The wedding was on a bright, sunny day with the ocean as a backdrop, a lobster dinner, and a wonderful band that kept the dance floor hopping until about 11 o'clock that night. Then there was an after party at a big mansion down the road where the bride's brother, a professional DJ, rented all the necessary equipment for a dance party that included psychedelic lights, a disco ball, and all the best party tunes. The party went on and on till Lord knows when, certainly past my bedtime. So this week, when I was reading the story of Jesus turning water into wine, I thought to myself, I think Jesus would have loved Nick and Becca's wedding. Apparently, Jesus didn't want the celebration to end either. If the wine had run out, the party would have been over. Maybe Jesus didn't want to deprive the community of this opportunity for celebration. I do wonder why, out of all the miracles that Jesus did, this particular one was selected as the miracle that inaugurates Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John. Like, 
why did he choose this one? Why not, you know, one where he gave somebody back their sight or one where somebody's life was saved? Um, but maybe we downplay the importance of celebration. When I was in Rwanda several years ago, it was after the genocide there, and I remember a very poignant celebration. We had gathered in one of the new communities being built with the help of the genocide heirs, those who had committed genocide and had been released from prison for community service. Those who survived the genocide were working side by side with the genocide heirs. They were usually orphaned, and Zoe had a program to train teenagers, older teens, to be healthy parents and providers for younger children. They became a family unit, and each of these families was given a small home with a dirt floor, built in a semicircle to create a community. So we blessed the homes, and the mayor presented each teenager who was a head of household with the deed to the property on which their new home was built. There were 60 or 80 people gathered that day, and they celebrated. They really celebrated. There were drums, lots of drums, and lots of dancing, all kinds of dancing, from the little ones up to the older ones, and lots of singing and lots of joyful noises. It was really beautiful. The children enjoyed the rare treat of an orange soda that we provided for the party, but they loved collecting the bottle caps even more as little um, toys that they could play with. Can you imagine the magnificence of a party for this gathering of people after what they had been through? The love and the grace just overflowed in a way that can only be described as holy. The celebration was about so much more than a new home, so much more. It was about community, and it was about forgiveness, and it was about new life in a place that had just recently been filled with death. It was about abundance. Abundance. When Jesus' mother called his attention to the need for wine, Jesus didn't skimp. He didn't skimp. He produced gallons of wine, 180 gallons of wine. It was excessive Six large stone jars literally overflowing with wine. It makes me think of another story just a few chapters later in John's Gospel where a little boy takes the crumbs out of his pocket and it becomes enough to feed thousands who had gathered on a grassy hillside. Remember that? He places what he has in the hands of Jesus and it becomes enough to feed everyone. So when it comes, when it seems like there's not enough, Jesus produces an ocean of wine, an enormous amount of bread. When Jesus gets involved, there is 
an extravagance to his response. In fact, the gospel writer John wants us to know that abundance is actually the mission of Jesus. You can read it in chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That was Jesus's mission. The story of Jesus turning water into wine is the first of seven miracles in the Gospel of John. In fact, the phrase, miraculous signs, is only found in John. These are signs specifically because they point beyond the story to something greater, something more wonderful than the details of the story itself. Now, this text is usually read during the church season of Epiphany, which we are in right now, because it's a revelation of the light, a revelation of the glory of God, glory that's seen in all its fullness at the resurrection. So each of the signs point to that journey to resurrection, and they all point to God's glory. The glory of God, the nature of God is one of grace. It's grace that overflows. It's extravagant. It creates abundance. It produces wine when there is none, so that a joyful celebration can continue. This prodigious grace creates an enormous amount of bread when it looks like there's only crumbs. So people picnic on a grassy hillside and it looks like a party. This overflowing grace is a miraculous sign of the ultimate gift of life when it seems that death has had the last word. Author Doug Paget reminds us that these miraculous signs point not only to the nature of God, the giver of grace, they also point to a reality that's available to all of us. Just as God was at work in the humanity of Jesus, God is also at work in our humanity. Think about that. God is also at work in our humanity. The first chapter of John's Gospel highlights this truth with the profound statement that the Word became flesh. God was incarnate in a human being called Jesus. And Scripture tells us over and over again that in fact God inhabits our flesh too. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. Paget says this, Jesus was the spark that started a fire warming the hearts of all people. And so we begin to understand the Christian notion of incarnation, not as the miraculous exception, but as the magnificent rule. God in us and through us at all times and in all places. It's God's nature to take on flesh. The incarnation is the magnificent rule. So it is that by the extravagant grace of God, we are capable of miracles that feed people, 
gather people for celebration, and yes, even give life. Perhaps the truth John wants us to hear is that not only are we recipients of this super abundance of grace, but we are the vehicles of that grace also. We too can be miraculous signs that point beyond ourselves to the extravagance of God's grace. That's the essence of abundant life, the abundant life that Christ calls us to. So are we to take from this that we too can turn water into wine? Well, yes. In a manner of speaking, yes. Now here's the thing, listen to this. The water that Jesus turned into wine was not drinkable water. When the wine ran out, there was nothing else to drink, nothing else suitable to drink. So the water, because any water that would have been consumed at that time was, was not readily available to the people, so the water that was used for the rite of purification was turned into wine, something the people could drink. You see, what could be more miraculous than giving people something they could safely drink? And don't we do the same thing with our contributions to Odim when they're used to turn the filthy lake water in Guatemala into a potable water supply? In the Lake Aditlan area of Guatemala, almost 70% of the people suffer from chronic malnutrition. The lack of access to clean water causes serious health problems, particularly for children. An eco-filter that costs $150 saves lives. Saves lives. And by that fact, we reveal a God who desires abundance for all people. Here's another astonishing thing about this story. If the wine had run out, the bridegroom would have been dishonored because culturally it was his responsibility to provide hospitality for this seven-day wedding celebration. Running out of drink would have been shameful for him. Jesus' action not only kept the party going, it also safeguarded the bridegroom's honor. And Jesus did it without even calling attention to himself. Mercy and grace, abundant grace. It's the nature of God. This has been a divisive week for our country. It seems that the worst angels of our nature have been on full display. But let us not forget this fact, that God is incarnate in every member of the Senate, whether hidden or revealed, the divine dwells within the hearts of all the people who were gathered for the State of the Union Address, the Senate trial, the prayer breakfast. They are all recipients of the grace of God. And yes, their very flesh is inhabited by God. And yet, there's only one 
who will be remembered as being a miraculous sign of God's abundant grace. Now, you may not agree with the politics of Senator Romney, but my point is not political. His courage to stand alone was inspired by his faith. Senator Mitt Romney says this, I am profoundly religious. My faith is at the heart of who I am. I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. My promise before God to apply impartial justice required that I put my personal feelings and political biases aside. My oath before God demanded it of me. That's what he said when he voted differently than every other senator in his party and set himself up for the ridicule of his colleagues. There will be times when you are called to keep the celebration going. There will be times when you are called to turn water into wine, oceans of wine, or little crumbs into an abundance of bread. There will be times when you are called to stand alone, to be courageous. Remember that God is in you and provides extravagant grace that every one of us is called to reveal in service to life, abundant life. I pray that it will be so. Amen.